Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Despite Tuesday's record snowfall, this winter hasn't been as severe as seasons past. Actually, scientists point to research showing that unusually high temperatures in February has caused an early spring for parts of the U.S. Will this warming continue? Today, we'll find out what scientists have been saying and consider what impact milder winters could have on industries that depend on the cold. Coming up, we'll hear from the New England News Collaborative and its story about how ski resorts are weathering this trend. And later, we'll find out if recent snowstorms have helped Connecticut's drought. First, we want to talk about extreme weather patterns and what scientists are pointing to as the cause. Joining us by phone is Gary Yo, Huffington Foundation Professor of Economics and Environmental Studies at Wesleyan University in Middletown. Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You're a climate expert. How surprised are you by the weather events we're seeing out west from uh, severe drought in California to now severe floods? Um, frankly, I'm not surprised at all. Um, the uh, uh, increase in intensity and frequency of extreme weather events like droughts and floods and uh, associated wildfires and riverine flooding in the Midwest, uh, very large uh, snowstorms, and um, during the spring and summer and fall times, uh, very extreme precipitation events uh, are the fingerprint of um, climate change uh, across the globe, not only across the United States. When we're talking about the extreme weather events that you mentioned, give us a little bit more detail of what causes these to happen. Uh, well, the, um, the globe itself is, is a collection of currents in the atmosphere and in the oceans uh, that move heat around. Um, the uh, absor absorption of extra heat into the atmosphere ends up in the oceans. Uh, the patterns of the, of the currents and the intensity of the currents change naturally. Um, and things that happen in the Pacific Ocean, like El Nino and La Nina, uh, influence things like the jet stream that comes over the United States, uh, changes that pattern, uh, and associated um, distribution of, of where extreme weather happens. So you've used the term uh, that extreme weather events are actually a fingerprint of climate change. Yes. Are, when we talk about climate change, we know that there are people who don't quite believe the science, and they say this is just an example of Mother Nature taking her course. What are your thoughts? Um, there is variability. Mother Nature has been um, um, taking its course for centuries and centuries. Um, what has happened since the Industrial Revolution is that human activity has increased the intensity of uh, extreme weather events by absorbing um, greenhouse gas um, concentrations in the atmosphere have absorbed extra heat from the sun, uh, and global mean temperatures have increased almost two degrees Fahrenheit uh, around the world. Um, we are actually committed, even if emissions collapse tomorrow, um, to another two degrees Fahrenheit warming uh, over the next several decades. And this year is actually the third hottest year on record? That's right, and last year was too. And so when we hear about these things, let's now go down to Washington. We hear a lot of rhetoric coming from the Trump administration uh, just today with uh, details on this, uh, this budget to 31% uh, cut to the EPA. What does that do to, to efforts to combat climate change? 
Um, they seem to be targeting the science and the science that is, is sponsored by the Environmental Protection Agency, the Department of Energy, the Department of Commerce, which is where NOAA lives, um, uh, the um, uh, mission to planet Earth uh, that uh, is, is part of the mission of NASA. Um, these are all been targeted by this administration, I think, irresponsibly, and now we know from the budget that the way they want to achieve their objectives of administrative deconstruction is to unfund things that uh, they don't like, uh, like science in not only in, in climate but also in the medical profession, um, dra dramatic cuts in the National Institutes of Health, I think is just immoral. So what's happening within your networks, uh, within scientists who are concerned about um, these uh, funding proposals being cut? Um, ever since the election, a large number of us have been very concerned that part of the attack on science will be uh, the um, <clears throat> eradication of scientific data scattered around um, all of the federal agencies. Um, and a lot of us have been spending an enormous amount of time trying to protect that data and protect reports so that the Trump administration doesn't uh, cause them somehow to mysteriously disappear. So frequently what we're trying to do is, is get all of that information in public websites outside of the country where they're beyond the range of what the Trump administration could do. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today we're talking about uh, unusually warm temperatures, mild winters. Is this going to be something we see more consistently? Gary Yeo's on the phone, Huffington Foundation Professor of Economics and Environmental Studies at Wesleyan University. Uh, we're talking about uh, a lot of the proposals from Washington to cut funding to specific agencies uh, that do important research uh, towards climate change. It's ironic, Gary, uh, there was just a, a Gallup poll recently that shows a lot of Americans, 62 percent of Americans actually believe climate change is happening now. So we have an administration that is um, full of climate deniers. We have American public who believes climate change is serious. Uh, do you expect uh, with efforts in Washington to defund research how that would then impact public opinion? Um. The connection to public opinion is is a, a difficult one to to sort of quantify, but I, I can tell you we found out while the uh, third national climate assessment, which was released on May 6th and. 2014 by the Obama administration uh, found evidence that we've already observed in all 50 states. Um, and some of the people who served on the committee that drafted that for the president, the then president, um, indicated that a majority of people in all 50 states um, uh, agree that uh, the climate is changing, that they've observed impacts of a changing climate and a warming climate. Um, outside their kitchen window, uh, and they understand that human activity is largely to blame. We've talked about uh, climate change in the past on the show, and we've heard from listeners who say um, maybe not focusing so much on what's happening in Washington, but being, uh, being more involved in local efforts. What can local uh, communities do in terms of, of helping combat uh, this, this global problem? Um, well, I think that's exactly right. I think for the next four years, the action is going to be at the local level and the state level uh, and the urban levels in cities like New York and Chicago and, and Seattle um, and uh, all across California. Uh, that's where people uh, have the ability to uh, tell their leaders that they want to be protected from the risks of climate change and want them to do something to reduce the sources of the growth in, in um, the uh, <clears throat> 
temperatures that, that they're seeing and the, the impacts and risks that uh, they are recognizing are facing them with increasing intensity and increasing frequency. And what are you telling your students at Wesleyan? Um, pretty much that. Um, we had um, uh, the former governor of Vermont in my class a couple of weeks ago, and on, uh, it's an environmental and resource economics class, um, and he essentially told them, and I think it's really good advice, that you can't just sit here and study this stuff and be convinced that it's happening. You have to go out and do something, which means... Um, in this environment, run for office, run for school board, run for board of selectmen, uh, run for the state legislature, um, just make your voice heard. And as well, we already have a coterie of, of leaders, that are political leaders that have been elected or appointed by various governments. Um, um, be com uh, communicate with them, offer to work for them, uh, work for groups that are <clears throat> trying to mobilize uh, adaptation responses, uh, protective responses, and convincing their, their governments that they really have to do things like commit themselves and then follow through with implementation to reduce the rate of emissions of greenhouse gases. We started they, our, our guys are really excited about that. <laughs> I, think, I think some of them will go out and do that. We started the show talking about extreme weather patterns, looking at California as an example. Let's go and come back here into Connecticut. We're in the midst of a drought. Um, yes. When we look at the situation in California, is that a warning to us? Could that also happen here? We have drought and then severe flooding? Uh, absolutely. Um, I think um, among the things that happens from drought, it, it affects agriculture and the well-being of and the livelihoods of a lot of people um, who are connected with that with that industry. The people who live along the coastlines are facing increased risks of high storm surges, not just from hurricanes like Sandy and Irene, but also from big nor'easters. Um, we just had a big nor'easter go through on Tuesday, and there was a lot of coastal flooding in Connecticut um, that uh, will only get worse. When we look at our infrastructure here in Connecticut and the rest of New England, you know, how well are we at, at handling an extreme weather event like a flood? Um, Connecticut is, is pretty progressive and is in, in pretty good shape. Um, they uh, do recognize that the climate is changing and they take climate change into effect, uh, into account when they try to plan um, investment decisions about infrastructure, um, about adaptation that uh, will help protect um, uh, human property as well as infrastructure. The infrastructure is aging so that uh, one of the things that likely come out of Washington will be a program to uh, reinvest in, in infrastructure and replace uh, old old um, bridges and roads and railroad tracks and, and things like that. Um, my real concern is that going back to where we started, that this uh, administration um, not believing in the science, taking away the science, um, defunding the science uh, will preclude the ability of planners for the new infrastructure to take climate change into account. So they will be um, creating new infrastructure based on historical climate instead of looking progressively and proactively forward into what is projected and the range of what is projected. What are some creative ideas to improve infrastructure here? Um, there are there are a lot. One 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 that's that's really creative that people don't think about a, a lot is is that nature provides a, a, a lot of opportunities. Um, nature provides uh, protection for coastal communities uh, through wetlands and marshlands uh, and dunes that are naturally occurring. Um, they are subject to threat from human activity and human development, but taking 
account of the value of, of those ecosystems in, in nature and uh, in enhancing the ability of nature to do that job um, is, is probably an innovative uh, thought. Um, we're trying to get the federal government to take that into account uh, as, as they think about how they're going to spend the billions and billions of dollars that uh, are going to be required to uh, do a massive infrastructure um, recalibration. But if they don't buy that that argument, then where who's paying for it? Then is it pro you know proactive uh, governors and, and states that that see this as a, a real problem? Well, they can't they, they can't come up with a trillion dollars uh, all by themselves, especially since the gov- the federal government seems to be dumping a lot of things back on the states um, uh, as as extra sources of of demands on on the scarce revenues that the states and local governments have. Uh, I think we really have to get into the planning process that's just beginning in the White House um, and tell them that, and use the D- Department of Defense uh, as an ally in this, uh, that they really need to take into account the, the risk-enhancing um, factor that climate change um, imposes on their planning decisions. Um, it is it will be silly. And again, the Vermont governor, when he, former governor, when Irene came through, um, he lost about uh, access to a, a large number of of small towns scattered across the states and uh, something like 90% of the bridges in the states. And FEMA came in and said, yes, you have disaster relief, uh, you can rebuild, but it has to look exactly the same when you're finished rebuilding as it did before Irene hit. And um, that governor convinced the federal government at that time that that was the dumbest idea I'd ever heard, that if you do that, you will be rebuilding this stuff over and over again every five or ten years. Gary Yeo's Huffington Foundation Professor of Economics and Environmental Studies at Wesleyan University. Are you hopeful at all, Gary, in the next months and, and year ahead of, of what's going to be happening in terms of the scientific community and furthering this important research? Um, we're pretty adaptive and pretty creative about what we do. Um, there are some um, enterprises that do need a lot of money. The mission to planet Earth that I talked about uh, uh, under NASA um, there are, are a couple of chapters in what will shortly be released as the next decadal plan for NASA that in, that includes um, a, a good deal of, of investment in toys that are actually really expensive, satellites and things like that. Uh, and this administration has said, forget about mission to planet Earth. Don't do that. We don't believe the science. Uh, all we're interested in is going to Mars, which sounds silly to me. <laughs> well, Gary, we appreciate your time, and we'll be checking back with you, I'm sure, in the months ahead. Okay. Is, is, is it possible that I could actually um, um, give you a, a summary statement of what's in my brain about this? Sure. Personally, go ahead. Sure. Um, um, I've been doing climate research for more than three decades, um, and it's mostly on the risk of climate change. And I, on the basis of that experience and, and my experience in the international and national assessment world, um, I think it's irresponsible and immoral for elected and appointed leaders of our country to dismiss the science that has been unequivocally producing evidence describing the risks that face people. Doing so unnecessarily puts the communities, the livelihoods, and the infrastructure that sustain well-being of, this, of their constituents and the surrounding natural ecosystems that are the foundation of human life directly in harm's way. And I, again, to re- reiterate, I think it's not only irresponsible, I think it's immoral. 
Well, considering that Gallup poll recently, I think a lot of Americans um, are concerned about climate change and and will be looking to their lawmakers and other community leaders to see how this problem uh, will be dealt with in the future. But Gary Yeo, thanks again for your time. Huffington Foundation Professor of Economics and Environmental Studies at Wesleyan University. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. So when you look out the window, it definitely looks like winter, despite the arrival of spring just four days from now. How can we forget those unusual temps in Connecticut in February and this month, with some days as high as 60 degrees? If mild winters are becoming more common, how does that impact industries that rely on consistent cold and snow, like ski resorts? Coming up, we'll hear about a New England News collaborative story and talk to local ski resorts, and we'll take your calls. Have your winter traditions changed? Join the conversation. 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Spring officially starts March 20th. If you're an avid skier, how much time did you spend on the slopes this winter? A winter that saw higher than normal temperatures. Scientists say research shows these warmer temps are linked to climate change. As if, if this is a trend, what will it mean to industries that rely on cold winters? Joining us now is WNPR's John Dankosky, executive editor of the New England News Collaborative and host of the weekly show Next. John, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Lucy. I appreciate it. One of your reporters out of Maine Public Radio, Fred Bever, reported that the New England ski season is not what it used to be. What is he talking about? Well, we've been thinking about this for, for a while as we've been trying to consider the industries around New England and the way that they're impacted by uh, effects like climate change. After just listening to Gary Yo, you see that places like the Northeast are going to be very much effective along the uh, along the coastlines, but also inland. The ski seasons have been getting shorter, but for the first time in a long time, Lucy, it, it's actually interesting. As much as the temperatures have been warming over the last several decades, the ski seasons around here have actually gotten quite a bit longer since the 1980s, and that's because of snowmaking. We've done a really good job keeping mountains at pretty low altitudes, making snow throughout a lot of the year. But for the first time, this researcher that Fred talked to, the first time in a long time, now we're starting to see the ski season getting shorter. Climate change is just catching up with us. When we talk about shorter, what do we mean? Days, weeks, months? Well, we're, we're talking right now about days, but it's a trend that doesn't look very good. Uh, let's listen to a little bit uh, from the story. Daniel Scott, he's a climate change researcher at the University of Waterloo in Ontario. He's been studying alpine skiing all across North America and the impacts of climate change. We may have reached a sort of peak season era in the 2000s when we had as a lot of snowmaking penetration, but now the climate has shifted just that much that in these last five years anyway, the average season length has tipped down for the first time in over 30 years. And he's looking at trends, which we can talk about, that actually show really bad patterns for an awful lot of New England. When we talk about snowmaking, it's something that a lot of mountains have come to rely on, even in some of the warmer winters, but it's something that we can't keep up with forever. Adding snowmaking capacity isn't necessarily the answer. We've seen that in the last couple of years where it's just too warm to even make it, or you do make it, but it melts so quickly so you're throwing money out the door. So yeah, they'll have to look at how to diversify 
their revenues, and, and not every ski area is able to do that. John, we're in southern New England, so what does that mean for ski areas here, Massachusetts even? Yeah, Massachusetts, Connecticut are going to see, according to Daniel Scott's models, uh, not just a, a drop-off in available ski days over the course of the next 20 or 30 years, but actually a, a total decimation of the ski industry as we know it right now. The models that he shows show that uh, some of the places in northern New England, Vermont, New Hampshire, in Maine, are going to be booming because people will be moving north. The small ski areas at lower altitudes and certainly in warmer weather areas like coastal Maine or all throughout Connecticut and Massachusetts, Scott says will largely be gone in about 20 or 30 years. What did Fred Beber find out in terms of comparing uh, the ski industry today to, say, 40, 30 years ago? Well, that's one of the things that is so interesting. This part of the world has actually seen the biggest growth in snowmaking. We saw the, the days of skiing per year grow from around 100 available skiing days across the Northeast to over 120 over just the last uh, few decades. But that is starting to that is starting to dip. The rest of America has actually seen a little less variation in that. Higher altitudes in the Rockies uh, give you a chance to have a lot more uh, snowmaking days and a lot more natural snow that follows. Something interesting, though, Lucy, is a lot of the money that follows skiing is actually buying up ski mountains all across America to diversify their portfolio. What they worry about is maybe it's a bad year out in Vail this year, but it's a, it's a good year up at Stowe in Vermont. That's why Vail actually invested in a mountain in Vermont. That's what they're trying to do to make the variability of the seasons that we've seen over the course of the last decade or so something that's economically viable. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me is John Dankowski, executive editor of the New England News Collaborative and host of Weekly Show Next. Today we're talking about uh, milder winters and what that means to New England industries like ski resorts. Are you a skier? Have you noticed a difference in the length of the ski season? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. John, we wanted to check in with some ski resorts in New England, both Connecticut and also in Maine. Joining us now is Tom Loring. He's training center director at Powder Ridge in Middlefield. Field, Connecticut. Tom, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Good morning, John. Hi. So, Tom, tell us about uh, you know the idea that we're having milder winters and what kind of impact that you you guys are seeing over in, in Powder Ridge. Well, uh, you know, John, uh, every all the points he's making are, are really on point. We uh, at Powder Ridge have just reopened this resort after it being closed for a number of years, and just in the past two years alone, we've put well in excess of over a million dollars into the snowmaking system, both on on-hill assets and, and capacity of pumping water, so that when we do have those cold temperatures, we can take uh, take advantage of those cold temperature windows. When we're talking, uh, and that, oh, go ahead. And so that's one of the biggest challenges is as a resort that is you know near sea level and very far south, in order to maintain natural snow skiing. We've got to bring our snowmaking plant to state of the art, and the long-term picture, as we're discussing, is not that rosy. When you're talking about having to make all this snow, and we're seeing you know temperatures in the 60s uh, last month, um, you know, do you see that money was walking out the door in a way? Uh, I'll tell you, the mood during that heat wave in, in February, the mood was pretty glum around the resort. Uh, you know, we thought we were done. Uh, and if we hadn't, uh, if we didn't have the obligation of the Special Olympics, we probably would not have invested in the snowmaking that we did 
um, in that first weekend in March. Uh, we're really glad we did because, you know, now we have this beautiful gift and, and we got uh, some ski season left. But, um, you, know, you know, turning on the system is expensive. Making that snow costs a lot of money. And so, you know, we are looking to the future to diversify the resort um, and to drive traffic there in a lot of different ways. Yeah, so what does that diversity look like, Tom? We talked to a number of people uh, who are trying to put in all-season events and activities at their ski mountains. Um, as a matter of fact, quickly, let's listen to Les Otten, who's been a, a ski resort developer for years. He's planning a new resort, actually, upstate in New Hampshire, pretty far north. He's going to turn what was basically a summertime retreat into a year-round ski area, in part because he wants to take advantage of the uh, altitude there and also the better climate there. Let's listen to Les Otten. You know, it's a, it's a hard industry to succeed in, and no one ever tried to take advantage or live off the disappointment of another. But it is very clear to me, looking outside the ski industry, that global warming is very real. It, the effects are real. It's there, and I think you have to plan for it. Yeah, and Les Otten, uh, Tom told us a couple times, he doesn't want to benefit off the uh, the disappointment of others, but he sees in 20 or 30 years people not being able to go to places like, like Powder Ridge and Ski. So h- how do you how do you account for that? You've spent a lot of money to make this a going concern again. What, what do you do over the course of the next couple decades? Well, John, one of the things that we're doing uh, to stay way ahead of the curve is we're bringing in a synthetic snow surface that uh, installation starts this summer, uh, and we have a scheduled opening of uh, July where uh, you're going to be able to ski 365 days a year on a synthetic surface. Um, and that's something that we're doing to to guarantee that you can come to, to Powder Ridge and experience skiing. We're going to put in four synthetic tubing lanes, uh, in addition to that, we've already begun developing mountain biking trails. Last season was our first mountain biking, and we're adding more trails and more features to that network. And then Powder Ridge has also acquired marquee events out of Hartford, which is weddings, events, uh, you know, group outings, corporate outings, parties. Uh, and we're going to leverage the the setting of Powder Ridge, which is a, it's a pretty nice place here in Connecticut, to, to host weddings and events. Um, you know, additionally, we have our Oktoberfest events and concerts, and we also have a phenomenal restaurant on the property. So all of these things together are hopefully going to keep people coming to visit us as we, you know, as we investigate things uh, along the lines of ropes courses and and zip lines and other things See, on the property you, you, to you, leverage. Go ahead. Yeah, and no, I was just going to say, all those things sound like uh, events, activities that people can take part in that I can imagine – I, I got to ask you, though, about the synth- synthetic turf skiing. What exactly does that look like? I'm picturing a, a mountain covered with astroturf like it used to be at baseball stadiums. What's it, what's it like, Tom? Well, John, you're not far off. Uh, imagine a very stiff, bristled nylon brush with uh, roughly quarter-inch bristles. Um, it's, a, it's a Teflon-coated, stiff, bristled plastic brush, uh, and it skis or rides on a snowboard very much like uh, – uh, a fresh, groomed, firm New England slope that many of us are used to. Um, and, and so it's not going to give us that sweet powder sensation that we've all enjoyed <laughs> over the last couple of days, but it does allow us to ski. You can train, race train. We will have train park features. So you're still going to have those. And, and actually, we're also going to have an airbag so you can practice those big aerials with safe landing. So <laughs> it, 
it's going to be a lot of fun, and it's going to still allow skiers and snowboarders to get their adrenaline rush. I don't know, Tom. It sounds like it'd be more painful if you fall. <laughs> it, it could be more <laughs> painful if you fall, isn't it? Well, so I would recommend to anyone out there skiing and riding that even on real snow, you not ski and ride in short sleeves or short pants, no matter what the temperature is. That's a good PSA, crystals, yeah. Those ice crystals can be sharp. So uh, the same thing with the synthetic surface. You're going to want to wear long pants and long shorts. And is there the potential for that road rash, that abrasion? Uh, I, I would be lying if I say it's not there. But, you know, we uh, another thing we do at, at Powder Ridge is we're the only resort in Connecticut to have terrain-based learning. We shape the snow features to give uh, high-level sensations to novice-level skiers and riders and help them to learn in a really fun and safe manner. And we plan on implementing similar uh, features with the synthetic snow so that Skiers and riders develop a really good balance on their board and skis and progress at a level where they're comfortable to try and avoid some of that. That's Tom Loring, Training Center Director at Powder Ridge in Middlefield, Connecticut. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalthathanchel. Today we're talking about what the milder winter will mean for ski resorts around New England. Also on the phone with us is Noelle Tuttle, Communications Manager at Sugarloaf in Carabasset Valley, Maine. This is one of the ski resorts that was featured in the story on uh, the New England News Collaborative. John, Noelle, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Uh, first off, what's your reaction to synthetic snow? Uh, it's really interesting. Um, I... I mean, we don't have it here, but I think it's, you know, a great alternative to keep skiing and riding long after the winter season's over. Now, you're in Maine, so what's the ski season like up there versus what we have here in Connecticut? Has it uh, changed? Well, yesterday we picked up 24 inches of new snow, and it seems like we've gone from one extreme to the other compared to last winter when we had dismal snowfall amounts. Um, so, I mean, yes, it's changing, but... Um, it, I mean, like I said, it's hard to compare last year to this year when they're just so vastly different. You know, we talked, uh, Lucy uh, and Noel, for our story to, to Dave Coda. He's the town manager in Carabasset Valley there. And talking about some of what uh, Sugarloaf has put in for year-round attractions, he was talking about trailheads and mountain bike parts, parks. Uh, so he's seeing people spending money in that area in a way that they haven't, even not in ski season. Let's listen to Dave. They'd go to the parking lots at the trailheads. They're filled up even in the summer, and we never saw that. A lot of it's second homeowners. I think they've got, you know, they've really got a reason to come back here. In fact, uh, you know, what we're starting to hear is that people are actually buying property here because of that, because of the mountain bike trail development. So could you talk about that, Noel, and how uh, development like mountain bike trails or other things that are happening at Sugarloaf year-round are helping you balance out a ski season, which is really variable. As you said, no natural snow at all last year, a lot this year, but who knows what's going to happen next year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the mountain bike trail development in the area is booming. We have more than 65 miles of world-class terrain, and it grows every year. Uh, the town has been really great in investing money and um, to, to build that network. Um, and like Dave said, you know, the parking lots are filling up every weekend. You see people here even midweek in the summer, which, as he said, is kind of unheard of. Um, we also offer uh, zip lining. We have a world-class golf course, um, scenic lift rides, off-road segway tours. So, um, you know, getting away from the mindset that, that ski resorts are exclusively um, the winter business. But but I, ha I have to ask you, how much of your total business is skiing? Traditional people buying, you know, lift tickets and coming coming up for the weekend. I, I got to assume that's still a bulk of the money that you folks make at Sugarloaf. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, our winter business is 
you know, more than 75% of our, our year-round business. Um, but uh, we see a lot of people who come here in the summer who, who haven't been here in the winter at all. Um, so, you know, just getting people here throughout the year is, is the objective. In that story, uh, Noel, we also heard about this term ski refugees, people coming up from Massachusetts and Connecticut to places like Sugarloaf. And you're seeing, are you seeing more of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, last year was such a tough winter for, for everyone on the East Coast. Um, but fortunately, we, although we weren't getting the snow, we had the temperatures to make snow. Um, so we made snow well into the month of April, which is the first time in our 65-year history that that's happened. Um, and we were still able to have an average length uh, ski season. You know, we opened in uh, mid-November and stayed open till the first week in May. So while, you know, resorts to our south, unfortunately, were closing, we were we were still able to, to get that business up here. Have you seen, though, overall uh, during the last decade or so, the length of the ski season shortening just a little bit year after year? No. I, I mean, I think there's been one year in the last 10 years that we haven't stayed open until May. Um, so as you mentioned earlier, uh, thankfully we have the snowmaking capabilities to, to blow snow in the, the marginal temperatures um, and still generate a solid snow base that, that'll carry us through the end of the season. I wanted to take a call now. Philip's uh, calling from Naugatuck. Philip, you're on the show. Hi. Yeah, I work at uh, one of the local bicycle shops down in, uh, in Woodbridge, New Haven at Amity Bike. And uh, our industry you know, gets pretty hurt with seasonal. So down south in Florida or California, they love all year round uh, biking. But for us up in here in New England, it kind of turns into Sleepy Hollow and we lay everybody off at the shop. But uh, with the, the turn of events, one, the weather change, it extends our season. But then uh, in the summertime, a lot of these, a lot of the resorts, the ski resorts are now opening up their mountain to, uh, to flip, I guess, their their summertime becomes our playground, and it's great for expanding the types of riding that we have for bicycles. So we have a lot more gravity and downhill and enduro, which is a new uh, type of riding that's kind of flourishing right now. All right, Philip, thank you for your call. You know, we heard uh, Tom from uh, the Powder Ridge and Middlefield talking about uh, having more mountain biking um, over um, over there. And I'm curious, you know, I wanted to mention, we've been talking a lot about this ability to make snow. And I'm curious, you know, in Connecticut, we've been in a drought. Can you explain to our listeners how you go about making snow and how that impacts our, our water levels at all, Tom? Well, absolutely. Uh, you know, with uh, as dry as this fall was and as dry as the summer was, our uh, snowmaking pond was pretty low. Uh, and there, you know, we were kind of on edge about that. Fortunately, with the rain we had in November and early December, um, all that water did fill into our snowmaking pond. And as far as water conservation goes, we're looking at it is the snow that we make is in the same watershed. It's not going anywhere uh, except back into the same drainage. So we don't, we don't feel like making snow is in any way, uh, you know, using the water. Of course, we will lose some to evaporation uh, and sublimation straight from solid to uh, gas. But the majority of the snow we make drains right back into the same watershed. So as long as we have a healthy watershed, we are able to continue to to use that water and make snow. We are uh, planning on restoring a pond uh, on the mountain uh, to add additional holding capacity uh, because we do go through an awful lot of water. 
Yeah, it, we, we heard of at least uh, about one ski area in Connecticut in Woodbury, Lucy, that uh, had to close down this year because of the drought, because they weren't able to draw the water necessary to, to pump water up into the mountain. Well, that is interesting, and we want to thank Tom Loring, Training Center Director at Powder Ridge in Middlefield, Connecticut. Also, Noelle Tuttle, Communications Manager at Sugarloaf in Carabasset Valley, Maine. And, John, um, how will you be continuing to follow this on the New England News Collaborative? Well, one of our, our themes, of course, is to cover climate change and its impact on the region. So this is a this is a story that we have on next this afternoon at 2 o'clock, and you can hear a little bit more about that. But there's another fun story that goes with it, Lucy. Uh, we got a story from New Hampshire Public Radio about how skiing got so fancy over the years. It used to be hundreds and hundreds of ski mountains all over the Northeast, but they were very small. They had little rope so that would pull you up to the top of the mountain and you'd I, maybe I pay, a, <laughs> pay a couple bucks. Well, uh, the folks at Outside In, which is um, a wonderful podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio, found one of these old-fashioned resorts that still exists. So for just a couple bucks, you can ski the old-fashioned maybe, maybe with all that fancy equipment and your and your synthetic snow. So you'll be listening to that as, this afternoon at 2 o'clock as well on Next. I want to thank John Dankoski again, executive editor of the New England News Collaborative and host of Next here on WNPR and a lot of uh, New England stations. Thanks, John, for your time. Thanks so much, Lucy. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalthathanchel. Did you know as of mid-February, Connecticut was still in a drought? What does this latest blizzard mean for replenishing water in our state? We're going to find out after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Friday at St. Patty's Day on the next Where We Live, did you know the 2017 color of the year is greenery? We're going to find out more from the authority on color, Pantone. Plus, Connecticut-based fiddler Dan Foster joins us to play some Irish music. That's tomorrow. We know many of you tune in to Where We Live on your car radio or stream us live at WMPR.org. If you can't listen live mornings at 9 or evenings at 7, you can subscribe to Where We Live on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any podcast app. Now, it may take a couple more days to dig out from Tuesday's record-breaking snowstorm. NBC meteorologist Ryan Hanrahan says this March blizzard was the biggest snowstorm on record for the Hartford area since 1905. Some towns saw two feet of snow, and we hear there's more snow showers on the way this weekend. What will all this precipitation mean for Connecticut's drought? Joining us now is Doug Glowat. Glowacki, Emergency Management Program Specialist for Connecticut's Department of Emergency Services and Public Protection. Doug, welcome to the show. Oh, good morning. So tell us about Connecticut's drought status before winter started and where we're we're at right now. Well, our status before the winter started was we were in a drought watch, which had been issued during the fall because water supplies had gotten quite low. Um, Last year was quite dry, as we all know, and they issued the watch for the purpose of getting people to conserve water. Now, we're currently in that watch, and we were in the watch all winter because even though you may not think of winter as being a large water usage season, and it is not, our reservoirs still need to be refilled. So for every gallon of water we save during the winter, that's another gallon we can use in the summer. So that's why we're asking people to, uh, to conserve over the winter. So we're currently in a watch situation. So before winter, we saw uh, Litchfield, New Haven, Fairfield, and Hartford County. They were considered severe drought. Now we're in moderate level? Yes, we are. The um, U.S. Drought Monitor has lowered the level slightly. Of course, we can't become complacent because we don't know for sure whether the drought will end this year, get worse, or stay about the same. There's no way to forecast into the future like that reliably. So that's why we ask people to continue their conservation efforts. 
So right now we're in a, um, a lesser drought category, but if we have a dry April and a dry May, we could easily jump back up into that extreme drought category. When we're talking about moderate drought, explain what that means. So you're, you're looking at levels of groundwater, river, reservoir? Yes, there's actually um, over a dozen different criteria they look at, over a dozen different indicators they look at. And the ones that everybody knows would be reservoir levels, river levels, and groundwater. But they also look at soil moisture. Um, they look at other um, factors that go into a drought. Um, time of the year is very important, too. For example, if you're in a moderate drought in the middle of the summer, it's very difficult to come out of that because you're in the middle of the growing season. It's very hot. Um, the plants are using a lot of moisture. They're using a lot of rainfall. So a lot of the rain that falls in the summer will get used up by the vegetation. Whereas if you're in the late winter or early spring before the growing season begins and you get beneficial rainfall, that's when it is most beneficial because it can flow into the rivers, into the groundwater, and into the reservoirs. Now, Doug, we started the segment talking about that blizzard we had on Tuesday. How will that all that snow impact our, our, our drought status? Well, the blizzard did deliver a lot of snow, but unfortunately it can be a little bit misleading because the liquid content of that snow is only approximately about an inch and a half of liquid. So if you take the snow, you take a, a column of that snow that could be two feet deep and you melt it, you get about an inch and a half of water. So thus far this month, our uh, precipitation, that would be the melted snow and rain that we've had, has been about normal for March. So unfortunately, the blizzard, as impressive as it is and was, is not going to end the drought all by itself. It may help out um, over the next few weeks as the snow melts. Some of that melting will go into the ground. However, some of it will sublime back into the atmosphere and evaporate. So um, snow is a little bit tricky. We don't know exactly how much benefit there will be. Um, certainly if we get another rain event over the next two weeks and it basically helps melt the snow and get it into the ground, that would be beneficial. We've been talking about, it seems, about a trend that we're having milder winters. Is this something that is concerning to you? Not very. I mean, um, milder atmosphere in general usually means more moisture available for rainfall and snowfall. So um, it can be... A little bit misleading. People think a milder winter has less snow, but this winter is a great example of a mild winter with above normal snowfall. And this is partially because the storms are timed properly to hit when there was a very cold atmosphere. Um, this is more by chance rather than by pattern. So we had a blizzard in February. It got warm. The snow melted. We've got this blizzard now. This time it's going to stay cold for a while. So <clears throat> warmer atmosphere doesn't necessarily mean less snow or less rain. And Typically, it actually means a little bit more annual precipitation. If you if you think about a rainforest, it gets a lot more rainfall than we do up here. Part of the reason for that is because it is a warmer climate. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Dalpathanchel. On the phone with us is Doug Lewacki, Emergency Management Program Specialist for Connecticut's Department of Emergency Services and Public Protection. Earlier, Doug, we were talking about, uh, you know, a year ago, California was in a severe drought. Now they're dealing with severe rain. Uh, concerns about how that could impact uh, Connecticut or what we may see here if we see another extreme weather event uh, where we may see flooding. Well, California certainly has come out of their drought dramatically, and that's always a concern because that does tend to happen with long-term droughts. It tends to be either a hurricane, a tropical storm, or a major flooding event that breaks the drought. And that's because Mother Nature doesn't like to, you know, be in a situation where you're well below normal. Nature always tries to come back to normal 
And right now we have about a 20-inch rainfall deficit across the state of Connecticut over the past three years. And basically what normally breaks that would be a 5- to 10-inch event that helps break that cycle and get us back into a normal rainfall pattern. But, of course, as in California, you can have major flooding. In fact, they almost lost a major dam because of that. So we're always prepared. Uh, We do our regular planning through the year for hurricanes, winter storms, and other types of disasters. So we always have plans ready to go in case we do get a major flooding event this spring. For example, in 1982, we had a drought in 1980 and 1981, and in June of 1982, some of your listeners will remember that we had a major flood in Connecticut. And that was partially because we had a deficit, and uh, it's like flipping the coin ten times. If it comes up heads ten times in a row, you know it's going to start coming up tails just by chance. So major flooding events do sometimes follow droughts. It's not a pattern, but it's just because of the odds become in favor of you equalizing the overall rainfall deficit. You were mentioning about planning for that next hurricane. So tell us how the state plans for that. Well, we have a state response framework, which is our framework for responding to the hurricane when it's approaching the East Coast. We also have emergency operations plans in every town in the state, and those plans are updated every two years, and they're for all types of disasters. We call them an all-hazards plan. They can deal with everything from a hurricane to a winter storm to a terrorist attack. So they're designed to address all hazards. And this planning effort continues. It's ongoing, regardless of whether we're having a disaster or whether it's been quiet for several years. Um, People do tend to get a little bit complacent when it's been quiet, so we have to keep that message going that, you know, we're always at risk from a natural disaster, and you have to be prepared. You have to have a kit at home, a flashlight, your medications, your important documents, food and water. You should always have a kit ready just in case. Always be prepared. Yep. What about the conversations happening across state borders? We were we were talking a little bit earlier about what Irene did to Vermont. Yes, that was a major flooding situation. And recently we had a meeting of the uh, New England Drought Work Group up in Massachusetts. And we were talking about um, such things as an early drought monitoring system that can alert us that the pattern is changing and that we may be going in through drought a little sooner than it would be apparent in the reservoirs or the rivers. So we're working towards that goal. So we're working with the other New England states in a cooperative effort um, to form a drought early warning system. They have these systems in the West, and they've proven to be quite beneficial, and actually they have them in the Midwest now. They've been building eastward um, because the West is more vulnerable to droughts, the desert environment. Um, and we are basically a wetter, more consistent environment. We do not get as many swings in precipitation as they do, but nevertheless, we are in a three-year drought now. And when you talk about planning and collaborating with other uh, states in the Northeast, let's talk about funding. Uh, Any funding that's under threat from being cut in Washington that would impact that kind of work that's being done here? Uh, Not that I know of. And in fact, emergency management funding, we have been told, is going to be about the same this year. So uh, not that we have been told. And um, we'll know after April 28th when the federal government releases the applications for this year's funding cycle for emergency management. Let's talk more about water conservation. I was surprised to hear, um, you know, in the wintertime, people were still expected to conserve water, um, uh, output, you know, the people that maybe may not have been using as much. Maybe they're not watering their lawns, per se. But have, listen, have um, you know, residents been listening to that? Uh, yes, they have. We have noticed a reduction in water usage. And, uh, of course, during the winter, there isn't much outdoor usage anyway, if any at all. 
So it's uh, mainly the indoor usage that they can cut back on a little bit, which is of benefit also. Um, outdoor usage, for example, in the um, town of Greenwich, they instituted a watering ban back in the early fall, just almost at the end of the growing season. They noticed a dramatic reduction in water usage when they instituted that ban. I think they saved some 25 million gallons of water per day because that ban was implemented. And the reason is because a lot of people down there water their lawns with these automated sprinkler systems that you've seen. And um, they're the type of system you set it and forget it at the beginning of the year. Uh, my wife and I have one at our home. And it waters the lawn every couple of days like clockwork. Well, those systems use a lot of water if you don't get natural rainfall. So um, the system can use, you know, several thousand gallons in a single watering um, a couple times a week if you're not getting natural rainfall. So those systems use a lot of water. And in a situation where they needed to conserve, they asked those residents to basically turn those systems off early. Now, Doug, we're almost out of time, but uh, spring is right around the corner. Projections for if it's going to be a, a wet one? The best guess right now, and I say that is a guess because we really can't forecast the future very accurately, is that we will get some relief this spring. There was a pattern with this drought where we had wet winters and dry spring, summer, and fall. And this pattern's been going on for three years, and this is the same pattern that was occurring during a major drought in the 1960s in New England. However, this winter, ironically, was a little bit drier than normal. That may, and I say may, signal a change in the pattern. We will just have to wait and see. But until we see that signal, until we see a couple of wet months, we're not going to lower the drought watch because people still need to conserve because, after all, our old saying is we always plan on the drought continuing until it doesn't. That's the safest bet. It keeps us safe and it keeps us conserving. Doug Glowacki's Emergency Management Program Specialist for Connecticut's Department of Emergency Services and Public Protection. Doug, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. Check out WNPR.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.